welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The Farm Bill is a massive piece of legislation set for reauthorization next year. It includes policy and funding for food and nutrition programming and agriculture. We'll get an update on how Farm Bill policy changes could strengthen Native food sovereignty. We'll also hear about how the Inflation Reduction Act could help offset the devastating effects of climate change on tribal fisheries. Stay with us. We'll be back after National Native News. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano in for Antonia Gonzalez. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez confirms the first case of monkeypox on the reservation. The infected person lives in McKinley County, New Mexico. A press release says vaccines for the virus are expected to come in next week. Health officials recommended vaccines only for people who have had close contact with someone who is infected or for those especially at risk. Nez established a monkeypox preparedness team in July that has been monitoring, planning, and coordinating precautionary steps in advance of the virus's arrival. It can take between 5 to 21 days for symptoms to develop, which start with muscle aches, fever, and exhaustion before a rash develops. Those who test positive should isolate and contact their doctor. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention counts nearly 17,000 monkeypox infections in the U.S. A federal ethics investigation concluded former Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zanke and his chief of staff lied during an investigation into the department's decision to block two tribes from opening a casino. The report, released Wednesday, says the Office of the Inspector General found Zanke spoke with a senator from Nevada, consultants, and lobbyists for a rival casino before deciding to block the tribe's application. MGM Resorts International opposed the project because they were planning to open a casino of their own. When questioned by the OIG, however, Zanke denied speaking with anyone other than staff at the Interior Department. The Montana Free Press says the Mashantucket Pequot and Mohegan tribes wanted to open a casino in Connecticut on non-reservation land, which would require approval from the Interior. But the report says Zanke chose to return the application to the tribes, saying the decision was not within his jurisdiction. The report focused on whether or not Zinke and Scott Hommel, his chief of staff, accurately described the influences on their decision. This report comes on the heels of a similar one released in February that found Zinke had also misled investigators about a personal real estate deal with the chairman of oil giant Halliburton in Whitefish, Montana. Zanke is running for re-election to the U.S. House of Representatives for Montana this November and denied any wrongdoing in a response from his lawyers. He also asked the OIG not to release the findings until after the election. His lawyers say the timing of the OIG report is nothing more than a political smear. A federal appeals court ruling says Wisconsin can't force tribal members to pay property taxes on reservation land that once fell out of tribal hands. Danielle Kading reports. A federal appeals court ruled the state can't tax tribal members on reservation lands that have changed hands without clear approval from Congress. The decision stems from a lawsuit filed by four tribes in 2018 against the state and around a dozen towns. The case was brought by the Red Cliff, Bad River, Lac de Flambeau, and Lacoudre bands of Lake Superior Chippewa. Lac de Flambeau tribal president John Johnson Sr. says the ruling is a big deal as tribes buy back lands. 
for us here on the reservation, it might be two or three years of taxes, some up time 10, 15 years of taxes that we're paying on this land before the BIA gets it and puts it back in the trust for us. So that's going to be a money saver for my tribe. The tribes argued the 1854 treaty that set up the reservations provides tribal members immunity from taxation for all time. The state maintains it could tax lands on reservations if they were ever sold to non-tribal members. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers says they're reviewing the decision. The state has 90 days from the ruling to decide whether to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. For National Native News, I'm Danielle Kading. And I'm Daniel Montano. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean and Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to the menu on Native America Calling. This is our regular feature on Native food news and issues. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy. Policy and legislation are not the most scrumptious of subjects, but there are some very important pieces of legislation that directly affect all of our food and could help tribal fisheries and hatcheries. Later, later in this hour, we'll talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act, which was just signed by President Biden a while ago, uh, devotes millions of dollars to help tribes revitalize fish species like salmon. Then we'll hear from a Navajo chef about serving up gourmet sandwiches on the reservation. But let's start off with the farm bill. It's a massive piece of legislation that governs our entire food system. In Indian country, the Farm Bill influences and directs funding to many different areas like agriculture policy, food assistance and nutrition programs, food safety, and finances and loans. It's up for reauthorization next year. You can join our food discussion today as your tribe focusing on the Farm Bill reauthorization. Are there any new Native food businesses or initiatives in your Native community? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring in our first guest to help us unpack this farm bill. Uh, joining us from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is Carly Griffith Hotved. She's the Associate Director of the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas School of Law. She's an attorney and a committee member on the uh, USDA's Oklahoma Farm Service Agency. Carly is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Welcome to the menu, Carly. 
Asiel, how are you? Hey, doing pretty good. It's always a good day to talk about food. Um, so the Farm Bill, I know it's this massive uh, piece of legislation. It affects all of us. Um, all the food that we eat has probably, um, you know, gone through policy from, uh, you know, the Farm Bill. But l let's start off with a little bit of history uh, for folks who maybe are not that familiar with how the Farm Bill works and what it actually does. Um, so what is the Farm Bill, Carly? Sure. So you're absolutely right. It's a big piece of legislation. Um, last one in 2018 was over 1,200 pages. Um, but the Farm Bill, or the predecessor to what became known as the Farm Bill, actually started after the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. And, you know, we're taught about the Dust Bowl quite a bit in our public school education here in Oklahoma. Uh, but, you know, that really resulted from some unsustainable farming practices. The bison had already been decimated from, you know, the Great Plains area and the native root or native grass systems um, with those root systems that had uh, six and eight feet deep roots. Um, farmers came in, plowed those up, did some deep fills, and it resulted in all this loose flow sand. And that really resulted in a lot of crop failures and unsustainability within um, our national food system. And so that volatility um, had a nationwide impact. And Congress and uh, President Roosevelt at the time recognized that there needed to be some sort of intervention to help stabilize some of the food systems and um, food economies that were being impacted by all this volatility resulting from um, you know, poor environmental practices. And so we had the Agriculture Adjustment Act um, which became known as the Farm Bill passed first. And it really incorporated a lot of you know, economic interventions, but really didn't do anything to address some of the environmental um, causes of you know, this food volatility in our system. And so as the Farm Bill has progressed, it's become broader, really taking to, in, into account you know, different facets of our American food system and developed programs necessary to address those not only from an economic perspective, but also from an environmental and conservation perspective, um, trade. There's a multitude of programs and opportunities, including nutrition programs within the Farm Bill. And for a long time, um, our tribal communities, um, tribes and individual tribal producers, uh, weren't, weren't given equal consideration. And so we were largely, Indian country was largely excluded from participating in quite a few of these programs and it's resulted in an underdevelopment of our tribal food systems in conjunction with our historical treatment being removed from our homelands or relegated to reservations. We've become separated from our traditional food sources. In addition to the imposition of that federal policy encouraging us to become yeomen or individual farmers kind of based on that European model, whereas a lot of our tribes were either you know, subsistence producers, hunter-gatherers, or communal farmers. And so that transition was really impactful for the strength of our indigenous food system. But since, uh, you know, modern times, we've seen a resurgence of commitment and um, vitality to strengthening our food sovereignty uh, through tribal food methods. And this past farm bill was one of the most tribally inclusive farm bills that we've seen. So really excited to continue this work. Right. Yeah, that was, um, uh, you know, something I wanted to ask you about. Like uh, lately, how have how have tribes really been inserting their, um, you know, their own versions of uh, policy? And, um, you know, what are some of the most important changes, I guess, to the farm bill that um, have really been beneficial for tribes? 
Sure. So the Native Farm Bill Coalition has really been a strong advocate in this field. And my office, the Indigenous Food and Ag Initiative, acts as the policy and research partner for the Native Farm Bill Coalition. But some of the biggest things that we've seen um, as far as making federal programs more available to tribes is parity. Anywhere where it says a tribe may or, or excuse me, a, a, a state may, organization may, we want to make sure that it says and tribes so that tribes are included right off the bat. But as we're looking forward to Farm Bill 2023, um, the efforts are really focusing on how can we improve self-administration opportunities of USDA programs and allow tribes the option uh, to administer those for themselves, whether it's a nutrition program, conservation program, um, into, uh, programs under the Farm Service Agency, uh, like disaster relief or loans, and uh, you know, forestry title uh, programs as well. And we've had a couple of pilots in the last 2018 Farm Bill that have been fairly successful, and so we want to see those be permanent. Um, and when I say pilots, I mean uh, 638 demonstration projects. And of course, when I reference 638, I'm talking about um, IZEA, the self-determination bill that was really targeted towards DOI programs. Um, but we, we've made it work um, through congressional authorization with um, the USDA programs that were included in the last Farm Bill. So in addition to parity, we're also looking for um, opportunities for, or excuse me, parity, self-administration, and we're also looking for opportunities to get native foods into federal programs. So the federal government through USDA buys resources, quite a lot of food products. And sometimes it has become difficult for um, smaller scale producers and tribal producers to be able to meet the certification requirements to become a USDA vendor, which doesn't guarantee that your food is sourced. It just makes it an option for you to be able to bid on the bids that USDA puts out or the request for bids. And sometimes it can be difficult to be competitive. So that's what we're looking for, parity, um, self-administration, and native food in federal programs. Right. And um, one of those uh, 638 pilot projects was the, um, the food distribution program, right? Right. Okay. And that one, yeah. um, we did a show on this a little while ago, uh, and um, it looks like a couple of tribes were, um, you know, part of this pilot program, and they got to really have um, control over how they put together their food packages and how they were able to bring in uh, local uh, tribally grown or tribally processed uh, food. Um, can you maybe expand a little bit on that? How, how has that pilot been going so far? Sure. It's, it's been going great. Um, the working group that has come together to really help address and steer and advise USDA on how the uh, program is going is comprised of uh, representatives from those tribes and tribal organizations that are administering that opportunity. And you know, previously it was USDA um, gave these uh, participant sites, here's your list of foods, you can pick this many, and all the foods were just what USDA had available within, you know, their, um, their sources. This authority transferred that um, option to tribes to be able to self-administer, receive funds directly, and source uh, or procure foods um, outside of that USDA bundle. And so it um, made, made it, you know, available for um, culturally relevant and uh, tribally preferred foods to be included uh, in, in those uh, 
food bundles that are made available for um, program participants who are eligible to participate in that. And so we're seeing a reinvestment of you know, federal dollars uh, passed through those tribes or tribal organizations supporting uh, tribal farmers and producers and helping them scale up their operations and expand their outreach while also including more culturally relevant and tribally appropriate foods within that food package. Got it. Okay. And we're heading up to our first break here, but I want to ask about um, uh, smaller scale uh, tribally owned uh, farms. How, how does the Farm Bill and all of this policy and all of these different sections within the Farm Bill, how does it affect like a a farm that's uh, maybe two acres, one acre on uh, a tribe, you know, supported by the tribe or supported by a group or a, a nonprofit? How does that kind of trickle down to those small farms? Sure. So that's a pretty big question. There's quite a few programs available to uh, producers of all sizes and all organizations, you know, whether that's a conservation program um, like EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentive Program to help with conservation practices like cross fencing or, you know, getting water out to a certain site. Um, whether that uh, is farm service agency programs like disaster um, relief in case there's been a disruption due to weather or some sort of other intervening event like we saw with COVID. Um, there's also eligibility to participate. Um, individual producers running smaller farms or really any size farm um, can get additional consideration um, as a socially disadvantaged producer. So that can mean more flexibility for cost share percentages um, or different types of funding pools. Uh, so that's there's really great opportunities available. All right. All right. We're talking to uh, Carly Griffith Hotfet right now about the farm bill. We'll, we'll continue a little bit after this break. L.A. Williams has been the voice of high school basketball for the Navajo Nation for decades. She's also brought play-by-play -play action in Navajo for women's pro basketball and even the Super Bowl. Now she's announcing the NBA's Phoenix Suns games in Navajo too. We're talking language and jump shots with L.A. Williams on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Welcome back. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular lineup of Native food news and stories. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy. We're talking with Carly Griffith Hotvet right now about the upcoming Farm Bill reauthorization. You're welcome to join us. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, Carly, um, so, you know, you were you were talking about the history of the farm bill and how natives weren't really or, you know, tribes weren't really um, included uh, in the farm bill until, you know, much later. And um, I wanted to ask you about um, 
you know, reauthorization is coming up next year. What's being done to make sure tribes have a seat at the table, especially when it comes to making those decisions about program, agriculture, you know, farm, food, nutrition, funding? Sure. So um, there's a lot of work that's been done um, by some individual tribes, but um, the Native Farm Bill Coalition has really stepped in and um, it acts as a consortium um, representing, you know, I think our membership is sitting well over 300 at this point, um, but quite a few, about 270 tribes and a few other um, tribally led or native led organizations and ally groups. Um, and we work to disseminate information and get um, stakeholder feedback, both from tribes and individual tribal producers, and uh, put that together in a policy recommendation document that is elevated um, to the to Congress and to the federal government um, as a compilation of all the asks. And this happened in the 2018, or lead up to the 2018 Farm Bill, and that report was called um, Regaining Our Future. And that was very instrumental and influential. There were 63 um, tribally specific provisions that were included in that 2018 Farm Bill based on the feedback and recommendations that came from Indian country stakeholders that influenced that Regaining Our Future report. And we'll have a second iteration of that coming out through gaining ground. Uh, but the opportunities that exist to participate are elevating feedback and concerns, either directly through Native Farm Bill Coalition personnel and staffing, or um, you know, participating on uh, lawyer and lobbyist calls where information is shared about you know, Hill updates and policy updates that are happening um, in Congress with regard to bills that are coming through that could be influential for agriculture. So that's a really great way to be influential. One of the biggest ways that we would have an opportunity to influence Farm Bill in Indian Country would be to participate in the budgeting process. However, that doesn't currently happen. Some federal agencies, as a portion of, or excuse me, as a part of developing the president's budget, which then goes to Congress for approval, and Congress decides, you know, what they want to allocate for each program. And the agencies are tasked with, you know, compiling their own requests and sending that up to be included in the president's budget. Some agencies include the opportunity for tribes to get a seat at the table to help influence where that ask for funding needs to go, where it needs to be allocated per program. Currently, USDA doesn't offer that option, which is really surprising because um, the, through the Farm Bill, USDA is the conduit where the largest amount of funding uh, is allocated from the federal government to Indian country, not DOI, not BIA, not IHS. It's over $4 billion annually that's returned to Indian country through farm built programs. Um, right. So it's pretty competitive. And so we'd like to see some opportunities um, for a change uh, to allow tribes to participate in that process because uh, we should have the ability to influence that. Right, right. And it's not like um, folks are starting to think about the farm bill like a year before it gets reauthorized. I hear, you know, people have been thinking about the next reauthorization, like as soon as it gets reauthorized, like, you know, the ink hasn't even dried on that uh, uh, farm bill or whatever. <laughs> and, and people are already starting to think about the next reauthorization. Um, so so who should be paying attention to uh, the farm bill reauthorization? Authorization and what's, you know, all the wheeling and dealing that goes on before uh, it gets signed? Sure. So, I mean, really, you know, opening it up saying if you eat, you're, you're impacted by the Farm Bill and by USDA programs. That's absolutely correct. Everybody should have an interest in seeing, you know, what it looks like when we're looking at it, 
you know, through the lens of what's important for Indian country, tribes absolutely need to be paying attention and tribal leadership needs to have a seat at the table and be influential in that process. Our individual tribal producers and any other, you know, food or agriculture businesses um, within Indian country should be paying attention as well. Um, additionally, our tribal colleges and universities that are authorized through that we call them the 1994 land grant. That's the year that the bill that approved and authorized um, their creation for federal funding uh, came through should be concerned as well because there are funding mechanisms to support those tribal colleges and universities as well. So there's, you know, pre a pretty broad application of who Farm Bill could be applicable to, especially from, you know, funding support perspective. Got it. All right. And, um, you know, where can we find, uh, you know, maybe concise information about the Farm Bill? Yeah, so the Native Farm Bill Coalition uh, hosts a website, um, and it, that's available if you just Google uh, Native Farm Bill Coalition, that website will come up, um, and that's a great place to find information. There's also a uh, place where you can sign up to receive information. And if your tribe or organization is interested in becoming a member, you can sign up um, to become a member and we'll receive um, information through that conduit as well. Currently don't accept individuals as members, just organizations and tribes, um, but individuals are still eligible to sign up to receive information from the newsletter that's coming out. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carly, for all of this great information about the farm bill coming up. I'm sure we'll cover it um, more and more as uh, 2023 uh, comes up um, in just a couple months. So um, that was Carly uh, Griffith Hot Vet from the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas School of Law, which is part of the Native American uh, Farm Bill uh, Coalition. Um, I'd like to bring in our next guest right now. Joining us in the studio is Alexander Ashley. He's the chef and operator of the Bitty Chitty Food Truck. He's Navajo. Welcome to Native America calling, Alexander. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So I got to um, sample one of your sandwiches from the Bitty Chitty food truck um, uh, on July 4th, um, the Navajo Nation uh, July 4th fair. Um, and I thought it was you know, really, really delicious. And I've been following you on social media since. I thought, um, you know, it was a little bit different to see the kind of menu you have there compared to all the other, like, Navajo fair foods that were there. You know, you had the, the turkey legs, you had the curly fries, you had the uh, Navajo stew, uh, mutton stew, and, and fry bread and everything. And then here's gourmet sandwiches from the Bitty Chitty food truck. Um, talk about your, your what's on your menu right now? Uh, so what we have on the menu on a daily basis, uh, what we have on the menu is on a daily basis is a uh, chicken, pork, or beef sandwich on a ciabatta with a uh, jalapeno mustard aioli. Um, so every week we run specials. Um, that can be pulled pork, it can be a hamburger on ciabatta with lettuce, tomatoes, onions, pickles, or um, two hot dogs with chili and um, uh, cheese and chili uh, made from scratch. So the menu does change. It's going to change here in the fall. We got uh, some soups coming out. We got uh, potato chowder, uh, clam chowder are going to be coming out for uh, the, the native people out in Navajo and surrounding um, Gallup, 
And uh, on Thursdays and Fridays, we're out in Winter Rock, Arizona, and Saturdays, we're at the flea, mar- flea market there in Gallup. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mentioned it's kind of a unique sort of uh, menu, especially, you know, for the Window Rock area. There's a lot of um, uh, fry bread, Navajo stew, like I mentioned. Um, You know, why bring a a totally different kind of menu to uh, Window Rock? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I think we just need variety on the reservation. We need um, a different type of food for everyone to to experience. Um, not a lot of people are familiar with ciabatta bread and the things you can add to it and the different flavors of the chicken and proteins that we add to the menu. And it's just to not necessarily compete with fry bread or, you know, the, the staple foods there, but it's just um, to create a niche for, for people that are, that want something different. And that's what I'm trying to do there on the reservation. Yeah. So um, you started the food truck. Um, you, you opened up and started making food uh, earlier this year. How, how have things been going so far? Yeah. Um, April of this year, we, we started the Bitty Chitty. Um, we've we've had ups and downs. I mean, it, it's a business. We don't know what to expect, but all we can do is uh, keep a positive mindset, get out there. And it seems like everyone is... Uh, we're creating a base now. Um, people are coming up and they're asking for a specific sandwich. Um, and they don't have to know that we call our chicken sandwiches the chicky anymore. They're like, hey, let me get some of the chicky, you know? Um, so I think um, a lot of people are, are starting to get it out there. We're getting a lot of offers or a lot of um, customers calling about caterings and stuff. So um, with our caterings, we don't just do our sandwiches. We can. We could do beef bouillon or, you know, chicken cacciatore, whatever the customer wants. So um, I like it. it. It's slow growth, but um, that's what I want is, is growth. As long as we're moving up, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I had the chicky. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember. July 4th, yeah. I, remember. I had the chicky, and um, I thought it was it was so good. I mean, chicken breast, I think chicken breast is kind of hard mm-hmm. for folks to make. It always comes out very dry. <laughs> um, but that was really, really juicy. And, you know, like props for toasting the ciabatta bread that it was served on. I mm-hmm. loved it. Um, uh, so, so you're here in Albuquerque. You told me you live here in Albuquerque, but you go and uh, you go back home. You know, you go to uh, Window Rock, which is what three, two and a half hours away from here. Right. Why do you make that trip back and forth? I mean, it seems like it maybe would be easier to do business here in Albuquerque. It would. Um, it would be ten times easier to do business here in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have a huger profit staying here in Albuquerque. Um, that includes the operation costs, that includes um, stress on my family and everything. Um, but I feel that I'm kind of cheating on the city I grew up in, uh, the people around me. Um, if I bring that, if I, if I create a business, I would rather have a Navajo-owned business on Navajo land. And that's what I want to do. Um, even if I go into brick and mortar, that's where I would want to establish my businesses in Gallup or in Winter Rock, uh, because I feel like the native people out there, you know, were spread out so thin and so far that it's hard to find, find food like this. Um, here in Albuquerque, you can, you know, 
go half a mile down the road and you got Italian food, you have Japanese, you have, you know, a variety of food. And in the reservation, you already know, you know, fry bread, mutton, you know, those are really good items, but let's give the, the native people something different or actually the community something different. So that's why I chose to, to make that journey down there on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you started, um, you know, with uh, culinary arts. To g- give us a little bit of your background. What led you to uh, culinary arts and then opening your own food truck? Um, so just just cooking in general. I, I've always enjoyed it. Um, I started off with baking. Uh, my mom would make these these dishes out of nowhere from the sparse materials we had in our cabinet and everything was good. Um, we had friends and family come over and cook for the family and that kind of sparked an interest and that built that built until I graduated high school. I had plans to go to uh, Le Cordon Bleu. I had all the paperwork in line and then um, um, my girlfriend at the time got pregnant so I had to push pause on my personal goals and Um, A year later, I ended up in the military, and I spent 11 years there. Um, uh, So in 2016, when I got out, I decided, you know what, I need to get back into school. And I was in school from 2017 to 2020. In that time frame, I I switched majors. You know, I went from physical education, I was thinking about doing nursing, and I decided, you know what, I love cooking. I've been doing it my entire life cooking for friends and family and it's time to get out there and put this to uh to to the test essentially so i went to cnm in 2018 graduated in 2020 i wanted to get a job in a restaurant guess what happened covid Mm. so the restaurants are closed now and you know you out of that negative for for the world it became a positive you know you have all these small business owners out there now trying to get their their items out there and that's that's what I took advantage of was um, just that situation that no one had control of. So, mm, right. Um, so, Bitty Chitty for the non-Navajo speakers, <laughs> tell us what that means. <laughs> uh, you can include me on the list. I'm, I understand a little bit of Navajo, but I'm not a Navajo speaker. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Navajo. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, Bitty. So Bid is our belly. Biddy is someone who loves to eat. So if you call someone a biddy, they're you're just essentially calling them like a a person who loves to eat. So chitty is a word for a vehicle on the reserv- on Nav- Navajo language. So you put both of them together and you get the vehicle for people who love to eat. <laughs> that works. Yeah. That works. <laughs> um, so we're, we're just about to head into another break here. But, um, uh, you know, I love what you said about, like, uh, giving uh, the community more options. Um, you know, why, why is that important for you? Like, wh- why is it important for people to have a variety of food and flavors and textures? Um, specifically for the reservation, it's just because we, we we're it's it's not available it's i look around and it's the same thing over and over um and 
I grew up on the reservation, and uh, fortunately, my mom cooked with the different spices and things we had in the cabinet, but friends and families would come over, and they were just like, no, thank you. I don't, no, I don't eat that type of food. Um, and it was like, okay, well, let's, let's change the menu. Let's do something new, because people need to experience this stuff, especially on the reservation. And that's my primary focus is just trying to get the flavors out there. So that way, it, to grow, you have to put yourself in a, in a different situation other than what you know. So that includes your palate, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, broadening your palate. I love mm-hmm. to talk about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you do that, and that leads to um, uh, learning how to cook and, um, you know, just kind of remembering these different flavors and textures and ways to uh, use different ingredients. And then all of a sudden it happens in your home, and then all of a sudden you're not afraid to use, like, eggplant for the first time <laughs> or, um, you know, dill for the first time because you've already had it. You mm-hmm. have a broader palate. Uh, so we're, we'll be back with um, Alexander Ashley just after this break, but you can join us. What kind of new uh, Native food businesses or initiatives are happening in your community? Early voting has started, but with possible changes in district lines and state election laws, it's more important than ever to know how, when, and where to vote. That's why AARP created state-specific election guides where you can find up-to-date information about how to register, where to vote, the rules for early voting, and key deadlines. You don't have to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, and this is The Menu, our regular feature focusing on recent Native food news and stories. There's still time to join our discussion. Are there any new Native food initiatives or businesses popping up in your Native community? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And um, we have Alexander Ashley with us. He's the chef and operator of the Bitty Chitty Food Truck. Um, Alexander, you, uh, you know, are, are one of... Um, you know, many <laughs> uh, entrepreneurs, food entrepreneurs on uh, the Navajo Nation. Tell us about that uh, process of, you know, business licensing and all that uh, paperwork and stuff. Like what what was maybe the most challenging part about that? Um, I think the most challenging parts are funding. Um you know, you have to have a certain credit rating to get a loan to start a business, and you know that's that's going to be that's going to vary from person to person. Um, and a business loan, you have to be established with your business license for at least a year and show profit. Um, so it's that's the most difficult part. Fortunately for us, we're in a comfortable position where we were able to get funding. Um, and kick off our business. As far as the the licensing and all the tedious paperwork on the rev- reservation, it seems like they're they're more about promoting small businesses. Um, the process was simple. You go to the health department, you apply for um, the business uh, permit to operate, and they give you a, an annual permit. 
Um, and then they just require that you go to the IHS website and you get your food handlers. Um, the process was simple. Um, afterwards, um, I think the most difficult challenge after that is um, going through the city and state if you decide to, to operate. Like in the city of Gallup, they require a food food um, uh, health department inspection through the state of New Mexico, and then you have to go and apply for the business license through the city you want to operate. And that's, that's a more uh, challenging area right there. That's about a month, a month and a half of paperwork and just, just waiting. Um, uh, and the other thing is creating a base. Uh, getting out there and getting the word out. Um, we started from scratch. We had nothing. We had a, started our Instagram page. We took a photo, and I didn't even want to tell my friends. Um, I told one of my friends, and he came over, and he helped me repair my trailer, get it up to operating standards, and and we hit the streets, and that was it. Um, we had to flag people down. We first started off at the flea market, and we were like, hey, I want you to sample this. Tell me what you think. And it was our chicky sandwich, then our beefy, <laughs> and then our porky. And people were like, oh, my God, I'll take one of those. You know, yeah. so that's how we started. And, um, you know, just getting out of your comfort zone um, was the last challenge. Um, but other than that, I think uh, just the family support, friend support helped me through all those challenges. Yeah, it's a small, um, you know, operation like like yourself. You have to be everything. You have to do your own social media. You have to um, think about all the business and then all the, um, you know, food safety, food handler stuff. And then, of course, like the menu. I, I'm, that's probably like the most fun part of uh, <laughs> of operating a, a business like yours. Um, you know, where could we find uh, more information about the Bitty Chitty Food Truck? So we only operate on one social media platform. That's mm. Instagram. We're at Biddy Chitty, B-I-D-I-I-C-H-I-D-I. -I -I. Um, there we promote where we're going to be selling on a weekly basis, our weekly specials, and our future menus. Um, mm. The one thing I do encourage people that follow me on Instagram is to, to communicate with me. Hey, you know what? Um, I would like to see this on your menu. I would like to change this, you know. Um, and that's that's all we encourage. But other than that, I think um, what we're doing right now is it's good. Uh, and the small growth we have, uh, it's it's manageable right now. Did I see you were making masubi? Uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, I did it as, as like an underground menu. Um, one of my, my biggest supporters, his name's Ed. He comes out. We met him at the Navajo Nation uh, Agriculture Department there, and he came out, and he was like, oh, my God, this is so good. Um, <laughs> and we just put it out on the menu uh, last weekend. Um, yeah. But location for your business will get you business. We were at the flea market, and we were not in the culinary area, so we we ended up throwing a lot of our masubi out. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, it's, it's all about location and getting the word out there. So it's a lot of good it. spam. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, um, Alexander for letting us know about the Biddy GD food truck and, um, you know, bringing different, uh, flavors over to the Navajo nation. Um, I'd like to bring in our last guest right now joining us from Hoopa, California is Michael Orcutt. He's the fisheries department director for the Hoopa Valley tribe. He's Hoopa. Welcome to the menu on Native America calling, Michael.
Hey, Morning. Michael. Thanks, All thanks right. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, there you are. All right. So, um, you know, last week we talked about salmon. Uh, we had updates on, um, you know, salmon and, and uh, you know, how the populations are doing up in that area of California and the Pacific Northwest. Um, but right now, could you give us a quick update about the st- current state of uh, salmon in your area of the Trinity River Basin? Okay. Well, um, the Trinity is the largest uh, tributary to the Klamath system. Um, Klamath system was a major producer of fish in its indigenous areas to Hoopa Group and Hoopa Valley Tribe, Yurok, and Karuk. Uh, it's a major part of the culture and the reservations. The reservation uh, purposes there, and one of them is fishing. And so, just the one update is uh, just happened yesterday is in 2002 there was a large our largest run left these days are the fall chinook salmon mm-hmm. and um, they start up the river at the mouth of the klamath in mid-august or so and uh, get up to our reservation around the first of september and anyway in 2002 you might have reported on this there was a large probably on the north america largest fish die-off um, in history on the lower klamath and the primary cause was a, a pathogen called ick and also another one called columaris and anyway ever since then we've obviously been very attentive to that and trying to prevent that from happening again and so each year since that time uh, there's been a variety of uh, efforts to mitigate and uh, to avert a fish kill and just recently yesterday we had a call and um, everybody was assessing the populations, the migration of the fish, those types of things, the temperatures in the river. Uh, and based on recommendations of Hoopa Valley and Yurok tribes, uh, the bear reclamation has been increased the flows out of the Trinity River Division or the Trinity River. And um, that um, is, is good news for now. Uh, we're going to see how it goes, but um, that's a major um, change this year. Um, and hopefully, um, it'll be a positive outcome and we don't have a fish kill. And one other, just a couple of other things there. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks to me, the, the populations are managed in the ocean by the Pacific Fishery Management Council in federal waters. And so they make a population estimate each year. And from early indications, it looks like um, maybe the runs larger than was predicted. So there's added cause for um, providing some mitigation and relief for the, the fish that are coming up the river. Now. Right. All right. Um, yeah, that, that's, um, you know, very interesting. I mean, it's amazing how, um, you know, different, uh, you know, land and water uh, management entities can keep track of all of this. I mean, it's very important work uh, for these uh, fish and, and not just salmon. I know you were talking about a couple of other uh, fish a while ago, but, um, you know, I wanted to uh, talk about the inflation reduction bill that was uh, signed by President Biden earlier this month, and it sets aside more than $200 million for climate resiliency and adaptation projects. And that's including tribal fish 
uh, fisheries and hatcheries. Um, how much of that money comes to Hoopa? I mean, you know, when you're thinking about 574 federally recognized tribes, you know, and, and you know, kind of splitting that $200 million dollars, um, among, you know, different tribes and different um, uh, climate resiliency projects they got going on. Um, you know, what, what do you think about how the how this money from the Inflation Reduction Bill would, you know, trickle down to Hoopa? I mean, does that give you hope for um, future projects and future work there? Um, so, um I never said it before, but I should say it is that well. So the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation has a distinction of being of the 109 tribes in California, the largest land base, uh, not population, but land base um, within the state of California. Mm. And the Trinity River and the Klamath Rivers both run through there. And so paramount to our culture and very existence is the status of the river, and not just the fishery, but all the resources related to that. And so most of the attention we then um, have paid to fishery restoration are the Bear Reclamation Run. The Trinity River Division is a part of the Central Valley Project. Um, and actually our water, since it was authorized in the 50s, it was constructed in 64, and at times were 90% of the flows, 100 miles up river reservation, but still water that normally flowed through and course through our reservation was diverted. And so there's been a lot of congressional actions. There's been restoration programs, uh, the Bear Reclamation Operations Project. And so a lot of our effort then has been, um, we, we had legislation in 1992 that required them to study and determine what the river needs were. And if the Hoopa tribe concurred in that decision, um, it was supposed to be implemented. And so, so since 2005, they re-diverted, uh, we're on, on the order of about half the water is going down the river for fish restoration and roughly half is still diverted. So our attention gets, that's a major part of it, plus all the restoration programs, but there's also a mitigation hatchery right at Lewiston, California, that's co-managed by, uh, it's the very reclamation mitigation obligation, but it's uh, managed, has been for many, many years by the state of California and the Hoopa Valley tribe since about the mid-90s has um, played a major role there. We marked a fish, uh, we, we worked for them with them. So anyway, our efforts are focused on terrorism mitigation obligation, the natural fish production. We also just recently, um, a lot of times when the doors close, we don't just say, hey, well, we'll just wait till you guys open that door. We um, also run a small scale facility on our reservation was started in the early 80s and so we're gonna we, we have that ready to go as a conservation facility where it's not just mitigating the, the lost habitat and the lost fish production but also trying to um, get population started including on our reservation so how then that fits into the, the initiatives uh, maybe I'll take a pause there and, and ask you if I, I might be getting off course from your question there but. Okay. Um, well, yeah, you mentioned this area that would be, uh, you know, ready for, um, you know, fish restoration. Um, are, are there any other uh, plans that, um, you know, maybe funds from the Inflation Reduction Bill would maybe 
um, you know, be beneficial? Sure. Um, so I, that was, I was getting to tying it into. So, so the first um, bipartisan in infrastructure legislation, uh, we just got awarded some money for active. There's $136 million from the Fish and Wildlife Service for the Klamath Basin. We're getting a share of that. We're working with Reclamation and others to get our small-scale facility going. But that legislation and as well, my um, quick review of the um, Inflation Reduction Act has a couple of things that are of interest to us. Um, there's environmental justice, which is kind of ambiguous, but I think we could be a poster child for environmental justice when half of our water was diverted. It's still being diverted into the Central Valley, um, and it's used for agriculture, hydropower, and another basin. And so we have some major concerns about that. And some things that could be done with the potential money are, I kind of like, okay, what's, what's something really large that we could do? Um, on the Shasta Dam right over in the, in the Sacramento River Basin, um, they did some major infrastructure improvements to allow them to release water and control the temperature for fish production and, and then concurrently do their diversions or hydropower. And the same thing needs to basically be done on the Trinity River. And so we've been trying to promote that through reclamation um, to get that done. It's, it's, it's large, uh, but if it's a lot of the uh, president's agenda, it's um, the water temperatures in the reservoir and the impoundment above us are getting warmer. And so the ability to mitigate or uh, plan for climate change in the future. We're, in California, we're like right on the, uh, the southern boundary of an adramus fish and as climate change and it's drier, the uh, rain and snow doesn't store in the, in the mountains like they used to. We really need to do something about that, and we're trying to get our attention of our congressional representatives, the Bureau of Reclamation. Um, and so those are all um, very, very important. Uh, we're also working on the mitigation side of it, both at the Trinity River Hatchery and holding them to that obligation, and then also our facility in Hoopa. We, we also might expand out into some of the other areas. Um, in the earlier program, I mentioned that we have listed coho salmon are listed in their Native Species Act, and the spring race of Chinook are also petitioned for listing. So I think um, kind of waiting for things to happen or get worse is, is not in our mindset here, and we need to be proactive here, and some of the funding would be very important. Right. All right. Well, um, that was Michael Orcutt from uh, Hoopa Valley Tribe Fisheries. Um, thank you to our other guests, Carly Griffith Hotvet and Alexander Ashley. I'm Andy Murphy. We'll see you next week.
Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a native-led foundation supporting native-led initiatives, protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 1st. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.